Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello there and welcome to another week of Cross Section, a podcast produced by the Evangelical Alliance that gives a faith perspective on news and culture. Today we are joined by two and a half, possibly three people on this episode. You have your podcast regular Peter Linus who will be joining me. Danny Webster is at home on parent duty so we'll be in and out of the conversation but we look forward to his contribution. So First, before we move on to the heavy news items of this week, of course, Israel and the Middle East dominating the headlines, let's start with a light intro, and that is Taylor Swift. And I guess um, I'm slightly upset that it's two against one on this because both Peter and Danny are Swifties in the making. Uh, This weekend, Variety reports that Taylor Swift's Eras Tours officially opened, uh, bringing in 92.8 million in North America and 123.5 million globally. Amongst all the devastating headlines, Taylor Swift still dominates. Why is that, Peter? Well, I actually don't think I have any idea. I went because somebody said, if you want to be a cultural commentator, you need to be on with Taylor Swift and know what's happening. So my daughters were going, my wife was going. So I went to see the Eras tour in in the cinema. It is fascinating. It's amazing how many songs I knew. Um, I kind of (laughs) recognize from just being played. I mean, it's a serious performance, I have to say. And yeah, so I'm fascinated at like how crafted and cultivated the whole thing is. And just... Yeah, I suppose how important her songs seem to be to a generation. But Danny is a proper Swifty. I am like a newbie trying to understand why this cultural phenomenon is so important. Peter's come to the party late. Um, I have been a fan for a while. I think she is a fascinating artist. And I, I think this idea that actually she's someone who helps us understand what's going on in our culture more generally is a really interesting idea. I don't think, I think that's the sort of thing you'll better judge in 10, 20 years time. Uh, when you look back and you think actually does her and her work help us navigate that but her but she is a phenomena the the size and the scale of the tour the appetite for it the fact that people who have been to see the tour are now going back to the cinema to see it the fact that people who are going to go and see the tour next year are going to the cinema to kind of get ready to go and see it it's just fascinating and i think it's yeah Maybe maybe one day we'll do a Taylor Swift special on cross-section and unpack yes. some of the themes, <laughs> some of the ideas in our culture that her music identifies. Uh, but she is a fascinating one. And just to add my own caveat for this episode, I'm, I'm here with my uh, slightly under-the-weather son, so he might be uh, joining in on the recording, making a special guest appearance. <laughs> but Danny, what in a sentence can you say, why is Taylor Swift so important? Why do people say you have to go and see her understand her? I think that's what I was trying to dodge because I honestly don't know the answer to the question. I think she's a great songwriter, um, but most of her songs are about breakups, <laughs> about yes. her, uh, her romantic history, which has been long and varied and uh, well publicised. Um, so in some ways, there's not a huge amount of depth to her lyrics, um, but maybe that is part of what makes it so interesting and so important, that it is some of that vanity, some of that uh self-obsession with individualism and relationships and self-fulfillment that her constant quest for fulfillment through relationships and through fame and her slightly um 
difficult journey through all of that. And that's not an uncommon theme for, for songwriters. But maybe there's something there that as a culture uh, reflects something more widely. But I, I think we're going to need to get some more expert opinion in to help us uh, dig into this one in the future. Danny, you've analysed and written articles in nearly all their songs, I think. But that's just my perception <laughs> from here. I've written the occasional article. I think my, my most uh, significant endeavour was once writing uh, an article narrating the 2015 general election solely using Taylor Swift's lyrics, which was definitely one of those occasions that um, marked out my life before children. <laughs> ah, Danny, all is forgiven. We we still keep, kept you on staff despite trying to do that. Well, look... That is that's a, a lighter intro from where we're going because obviously still the dominant news story this week is Israel Palestine. Uh, all that's going on, probably right now as we're recording, uh, it is Thursday. Is still the question around the hospital bombing. That's what's really drawn the attention this week. Um, the narrative around that, how that has shifted. Um, it does feel like uh, certainly as I read the news initially, it was very much Israel uh, had bombed the hospital, then immediately started the counter stories. Fascinating to see how people reported on it and how we're now saying X says this happened, Y says this happened, and nobody seems to be yet quite calling it. Although I think it's fair to say that the narrative overall has probably shifted to some sort of field rocket or, or launch more from the Hamas side than the Israeli side. But again, people seem to have strong views. Joe Biden's there. Our prime minister is there, Alicia. Any thoughts on the usefulness or otherwise of Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak heading to Israel in the Middle East? Well, um, I think for Joe Biden and just through the reports that I've been reading and seeing, there is something of uh, trying to encourage um, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to, to take a humanitarian approach where possible, uh, to show support, not just in words from the comfort of the White House, but to be there and present. I heard that there was attempts for some reconciliation or at least some conversations with um, Arab leaders uh, in this engagement and the role that the surrounding nations play on this. So I think Joe Biden is wanting to place himself as a statesman, wanting to place himself as um, the US is um, in support uh, of Israel, both this, uh, its nationhood, its statehood, but also wanting to call and encourage um, the prime minister to uh, to shift and pivot and, and kind of allow um, humanitarian aid, which seems like that um, last week's outcry and that strong response of cutting up access is somewhat loosened as today there's likely to be an opening um, through Egypt for trucks and humanitarian aid to come in. In terms of why the prime minister um, Rishi Sunak is there, I'm still... I'm still questioning that. What role is he looking to show statemanship? Is he looking to show leadership? Of course, there have been British citizens that have been impacted by um, the strikes and the violence that's taken place. But I'm not sure that he needed to be on the ground in order to achieve diplomacy. So a jury's out a little bit when it comes to the prime minister. Danny, do you want to come in on either Joe Biden, the prime minister, or the, the kind of narrative around the bombing of this hospital? I think the, the narrative around the bombing of the hospital has probably brought to light um, the adage of the first casualty in war is truth. Um, and I did actually quickly Google that and the original usage of the, the phrase is slightly different. But it is this, and I think what we're seeing is the difficulty and the challenge of knowing what to believe and what to trust and how to know what's going on. Uh, because as you say, 
the immediate impact on Tuesday evening was uh, Israel have bombed a hospital in Gaza. And then the following morning, as people started to um, pick through various footage and examples and say, well, actually, hang on a minute, what damage has actually taken place? Uh, what's happened? Is this consistent with a bombing or is it a misfired rocket? Is this the sort of damage that would have killed 500 people or is it actually far fewer? Um, and then the reporting shifted. So it shifted from Israel denying it, and then it became Joe Biden was uh, backing Israel's stance. And the news outlets kind of, they they almost had to hedge their bets because they probably got it wrong initially, and therefore were trying to uh, move the story on without accepting that they maybe got it wrong in the first place. But, but what you also see is, I, I see in this conflict more than other conflicts, just the sheer um, differences of opinion. I look on my social media feeds, particularly X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, just the sharp divides between those people who are passionately in Israel's corner and those that are passionately anti-Israel and supporting the Palestinians. Um, I think that I think how we understand and navigate it when we're faced with this, that we don't then just respond and say, oh, it's too complicated, or I don't know, or there's no way I can know who's at fault. So I think we need to we need to scrutinise our news. We need to uh, use our critical faculties. But we also need to be able to say, well, actually, how can we come to a conclusion? What are the sources that we trust? Um, because otherwise, we'll just opt out from having a view altogether or say, oh, it's all just too complicated. There's no way of knowing who's actually at fault. And, well, someone is at fault. It's just trying to determine who that is and where their different responsibilities lie. So one of the things that's really coming up now and I'd love us to talk about a little bit is, um, I suppose, the international conventions around war. But a lot of that is based on what is known as just war theory. I like just war theory. You two just smile at me a little bit because, but St. Augustine um, was one of the key uh, thinkers, Christian thinkers on whether there is such a thing as a just war. And basically he talked about that in two ways. One, use ad bellum, he liked his Latin, you know, what justifies going to war and then uh, use in bellow, like the actual right conduct when you're in a war. And there are a number of kind of core principles that are starting to come up in conversation, not always people linking them to the full ideas of just war. But I wanted to talk about those uh, just kind of briefly, because I think it starts to help frame how we engage. And when you're going to war, the rights to go to war, you have to be a competent authority. So there is a distinction being made here by some people between Israel and Hamas. Now, Hamas is the political authority within Gaza, but it's also a prescribed terrorist organization. So are you the competent authority to go to war, you have to have a probability of success, like as in you have to have grounds for thinking you can actually win the war. Uh, in both cases, there's question marks there. I would say slightly more for Hamas and the way they attack that they brought about. But so there's that. Then, then it has to be the last resort. You have to have explored every other option before you move into war. And ultimately, perhaps the core one is, is this a just cause? Um, so the reason for war needs to be just like an innocent life. It uh, must be an imminent danger. And I think there, Israel's justification there and the just war, the just cause piece, sorry, would seem to me to be much clearer. So those are the kind of rules that say why you can go to war and what legitimizes war. Not all Christians agree on this, but this would be the prevailing opinion, not just within the Christian world, but beyond that. And I think those help to start to frame 
like that Hamas's initial terrorist attacks wouldn't fit within the rights to go to war. Israel's basic premise of, in terms of uh, the hostages and protecting innocent life, life, sorry, would be would would be covered by this. But that then does tip us. If I if I talk to the two main grounds when you're in war, and these this language has really come up, I've seen in the news is what they call discrimination, as in you must discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. So you must only target intentionally those who, combatants who are involved in the war. And of course, where this gets messy is when rockets are being launched uh, or operations are being run from schools or hospitals, and that increases the likelihood of civilians um, being impacted. So it's not that, you, that it says that you can never impact civilian life. That's almost inevitable more they will, but you must um, be targeting combatants and it must be proportional. So you can't say, well, we've gone after that rocket site, but actually there were a thousand civilians killed, but we got that one rocket site. That's not a proportional use. And again, there's grayness to both these things. And we're going to start seeing, I think, a lot more of that language because of the way this war is being run, because it is in an incredibly tight area and, and there is not a lot of space. And there are two million civilian or two million people and, and largely civilians in Gaza and and the bombings happening in a very limited space. So I think um, it's fascinating to me, I suppose, at the higher level that these still are the governing principles for so many people in this conversation. And I think we should thank St. Augustine for them. Um, but I'm also kind of intrigued with what you guys think about the way this conversation is unfolding, about the justification for going to war and then our practices in war and how much Christian thought still governs a lot of that. Well, um, first of all, I think Thomas Aquinas was really the one who unpacked mm. uh, just war theory. Uh, well, it did have yes. roots with Sante Graston. Uh, the actual theory, as you've set out, was more Thomas Aquinas's uh, work than Saint Augustine. I will, I will say, I did have to just Google to double check that. I didn't want to uh, jump in without having checked that. Um, I think what you've set out is clearly the challenge that um, this is slightly more conventional uh, than some kind of state versus terrorist activity because of Hamas's role in the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. So I think you can see it as a war between two state parties. I think then the main question, and I think because of Hamas's actions in Israel, Israel's response meets the first set of criteria. I think the question then is how that's done and how can warfare be done in a way that is non-discriminatory and proportionate. Um, when there is such a dense civilian population. Um, it doesn't mean that actually, while Israel might have a right to go to war, because they are unable to conduct a war in a way that meets those criteria, should they actually refrain from warfare? I think that's where um, the application of just war theory gets difficult, because, because some people would follow just war theory and say actually on both the, the justification for war and the practice of warfare, actually there should be very very few circumstances where those conditions are really met well having to dust off my international humanitarian law modules in order to engage in this high level conversation um i think where i find this challenging is that yes the rules of war uh are there and laid out but i think the challenge and the reality particularly as i'm listening and reading to more commentators within the region and referring to them as a source of what's life like on the ground. 
Israel finds itself in a situation where they're surrounded by the unknown and the, the sense of fear, hence the conversation about self-determination. On top of that, there is a reality that Hamas doesn't just exist within small pockets within the Gaza Strip or within Palestine, but it exists in tunnels underneath public services, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't imagine what it's like to deal and respond to the evil that they witnessed and experienced that they were caught off guard by, that their civilians were attacked en masse, feeling a need to respond through retaliation, and we'll come to whether that's the, the right place or respond with urgency and with force, and yet Hamas isn't playing by the rules of international human rights in terms of their engagement. And so I guess my challenge is that just war theory works in principle, but the reality of particularly this conflict is that Israel is located in a region where for many decades, centuries, it has experienced a form of oppression and violence. There is fear both in words that is stirring up hate. There's a reality from the north through Hezbollah. There's the reality of Hamas within Gaza. There's a reality of all these things that Hamas doesn't exist in a place that you can perfectly pinpoint and target um, and, and, and deal with that. And so there's naturally going to be an escalation. So just will theory, I used to be a pacifist. And then there's moments where you look at situations and you're like, no, actually, a response to evil requires a violence, requires not violence, but a force that is countering that. So I guess I'm at a loss. I, I find it challenging. And I'm I'm just listening to other commentators within the region that take a completely different viewpoint to Westerners that are talking about this conversation. Yeah, it seems to me there's a lack of nuance in a lot of the conversations. That's maybe beginning to come a little more now. It's sort of everybody wants a simple which side's good, which side's bad, yeah. or I've got my tribe and I'm going to go with them. And then in that, as soon as you say, I guess I acknowledge that's wrong or this bit was right, it's like, oh, well, then you're siding with everything that mm. Hamas or Israel did. And you're like, no, we can say that action was wrong, but I still have some you know, back, you know, know, backing or, or sympathy for your cause and, and vice versa. And uh, it does seem like it's it has to be very, very binary at the moment. Um, and, and conscious of time, because uh, one of the things that we... So there it was King Charles, I have to keep remembering not to come, Prince Charles was making a speech last night on civility um, uh, in the city of London. And he was picking up on this idea that things become more and more tribal identity politics. And the way this goes is that if you attack or disagree with my opinions, it's not just a disagreement about an opinion, it's a disagreement with who I am and my identity. And it's one of the things we've talked about before on the podcast. Um, so I want to kind of move us along. You are listening to Cross Section. It's a podcast of the Evangelical Alliance. Love you to get in touch. Crosssection.eauk.org. If you want to email us, uh, we had a couple of emails last week about the Israel-Palestine episode. A couple of positive comments. One asking a few questions. Um, so we seem to have navigated that. Maybe not. I thought we might get a, a, an inbox Sweet. full of full of problems. <laughs> so, but you can get in touch. You can follow us on social media. You can listen along. Um, but we are shifting to kind of. A wider set of stories. So King Charles and civility, um, where we source our news, like who should lead in this conversation. So Alyssa, you kind of brought some of this. I brought King Charles, you brought the rest of the table. What are we talking about for the last 10 minutes? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, the news is bleak week on, week out, uh, and it's only been escalated through um, what's going on in the Middle East. And so we just put out a poll just to glean uh, where do people believe 
who can lead through these cultural crises and moments that we face? Um, we One option was Christians and the church. Another was political leaders. Another was philanthropic leaders and organizations. Uh, and the last one was tech companies. Interestingly, there were zero votes <laughs> for engagement for tech companies to engage in this moment. Maybe it's linked to all the disinformation that is taking place online. I guess, coming back to King Charles and his speech, what I thought was, was impressive, both him being a monarch, is there was a level of wisdom, both in tone and engagement of what he was saying in terms of there needs to be greater understanding, there needs to be greater appreciation. I would say that, and I guess he has the freedom to speak uh, like a statesman because he's not responsible for either policy or legislation or having to deal with the politics on the ground. But I think his tone and engagement was correct. Where I think it's challenging for political leaders in this moment to engage constructively, particularly in the Middle East um, space, is that there is a um, legacy or a vested interest beyond just bringing resolution to the air in the space. Um, so yeah, that that's my initial thoughts. And my other challenge is, how can the church engage constructively, not just by a presence, but taking biblical principles, taking things like the Sermon on the Mount, the message of reconciliation uh, and that pursuit of peace for all nations? How do we contribute in this moment? No, oh, Danny, I know you uh, spent a night with a very sick child, so I'm not sure how up to speed you are with Prince Charles. As kind of, we are a community of communities and we have differing values and how we reflect upon them. Um, but I'll... I'll uh, yeah, I suppose. Uh, well, the, yeah. the advantage of being in AME for a few hours is I did actually have a chance to read a few things. Um, and actually, I had a look at uh, the articles around King Charles' speech. And King Charles is an interesting monarch. I think people are kind of waiting to try and see how he navigates uh, social and political matters. He is, being, he is being branded almost as someone much more willing to engage in political issues. I think his speech was measured and careful. I don't think he was doing, I don't think he was substantively saying anything um, Queen Elizabeth II would not have said. It was a call for civility and for care. Um, now, there's always a risk with that in when you're in the context of a conflict, that you can be accused of kind of a both-sidism, that you're saying, we just need to behave well, regardless of who the rights and the wrongs, we just need to behave well. I think the pushback sometimes is, well, actually, when something wrong is happening, civility can be a mask that removes the pursuit of justice, that we want, we just want to stay friendly and to try and help everyone to get along, um, regardless of the situations. So like in the current context, while it is encouraging to see people from different religious beliefs working together and seeking to pursue humanitarian ends, calling for peace, actually, this is a religious conflict as well. So it is encouraging to see Christian, Jewish, Muslim leaders speak together and say, we need to find peaceful solutions. We need to ensure humanitarian aid gets to the people who need it that shouldn't cover over the religious components of a conflict, the fact that there are significant religious disagreements. Um, and I think that's always the challenge when you talk about um, civility, when you talk about um, 
listening to one another and making sure that all sides are heard and that yes you do want that to happen but you don't want that to be as something that dismisses or ignores the the depth of difference that does exist between people and king charles did say he brought together leaders of the major faiths across these islands the uk is talking about um to welcome them with respect and indeed love and to rededicate my life he's saying to protecting the space for faith within our shores um faith is capitalized in the notes of his speech always interesting uh and while we've had discussions before about King Charles being defender of the faiths, and I think he's changed from that language, but he is defending or protecting the space for faith. And personally, I think I'd rather that than a fudge where he pretends to be something. Mm. Uh, you know, essentially, we can get into the whole Church of England, and that's their problem in a sense. That's <laughs> the head of the Church of England in a nice way. But I'd rather we have clarity that that's, he, I don't think he is saying, like his mother, his mum was much clearer, Queen Elizabeth, that she was Christian, follower of Jesus. And, and articulated that Charles is saying that's not as clear for him, but he is going to defend the space for faith. And I can absolutely live with that. I think that's an important thing to have a monarch do and to have people speaking about, you know, like others, it's not the tech spaces and the government. Uh, it's not the tech companies I'm looking to in this moment, funnily enough. Um, it's not our government who seem to be really struggling. Um, one of the new stories that we're only going to mention briefly is uh, an issue conversion therapy that we have talked about the government has said it was going to legislate, it promised to legislate, then it recognised that it didn't need to legislate and said actually laws already protect that. So a few weeks ago, I think we commented, that's not going ahead as a piece of legislation, it looks like. And lo and behold, again, uh, on Thursday, uh, we get newspaper articles saying they are going to legislate, mm. not because they think there's a need for it, basically, the paper is saying, but because it would appear bad, so they're going to try and do it. But And I say do it, um, I think we all believe in most likelihood that's going to appear in the King's speech, as in, not the one he made last night, the upcoming one in Parliament, but the time and the reality to get that through is unlikely. And all the information we're hearing on the ground is nothing's actually changed behind the scenes. The need for this doesn't appear to have changed. Um, law does cover it. And again, to be clear, in our position as evangelical alliance, um, harmful and abusive practices are wrong. They are already banned, we think. Um, but if there is a need for new legislation, we're open to look at that. So look, it's something we'll talk about in more detail. But again, this goes to the credibility of a government that keeps changing its tune and it keeps changing its tune because a new group comes along and says, no, we want this. And then another group says, no, we want this. And so it does go to the whole credibility in this moment. It sure does. <laughs> Danny's and just, and just, I don't know. Well, and just to pick up on the wider political point, it picks up on the party management so much government policy is based on party management. It's seen on how you can keep enough of your party on side. So, for example, Keir Starmer's taken a very strong line um, on the Israel-Gaza situation. I, I, I think he's probably doing it because he thinks it's the right thing to do, but it is also serving to help him put distance between his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, and the challenges the Labour Party had with anti-Semitism. So by him speaking out strongly in favour of Israel, he's managing his party as well. So, and I think there's that challenge that um, party management is often as significant a motivator when politicians speak. And like at the moment, everyone's giving up for the general election. You've got by-elections, um, that have taken place this week. As we're recording, people are out to vote in Tamworth and Mid-Bedford. Uh, we'll probably have the results by the time you listen to this. Um, 
So all of those, that political context reflects how people speak and why people speak. So I think it's it's always challenging to know exactly why are politicians saying something. I think that comes down to the question of leadership. Why are they leading and who are they leading? Are they leading their party or are they seeking to lead the country? I think something else that I, I will add and, and direct to listeners who are Christians on the call is that with the heaviness of the news, the heaviness of the last two, three, ten years, Lord, uh, when it comes to politics and the nature of communities and the polarization and the disagreements and wars and just endless crises that are coming, that there can be a weariness for Christians to even want to engage in the political space or the political sphere. And I totally appreciate that. I totally understand that. But as Christians, we have we have a gift that is the gospel. We have a gift that is our savior, Jesus. And there's moments like this where we see the limits of politics in action. Politics in and of itself cannot resolve all the ills that are taking place globally. We can look to our leaders and encourage that they are people of honesty, integrity, and truthfulness and trustworthiness. But ultimately we have to set our minds, our focus on things that are above that, you know, that great passage of scripture in Colossians 3, that we would look to the things of heaven and long for them here and be encouraged for that here. And so I just want to speak to our listeners who are weary about politics, political engagement. Do not grow weary in this season, but all the more look to him that would lead and inspire us to be great advocates for justice, great advocates for change, defender of the widow, the orphan and the vulnerable in our society in every guise that it does take. So look to politics and politicians to a certain degree, but ultimately they cannot bring the transformation that is required. Absolutely agree. Um, I think the big lesson for me is the slow to trust the news. We just need to slow down. It's fascinating to watch people kind of doubling down and jumping in so quickly on stuff. I think the big point is what you said, Alicia. So many people I talk to are fearful. They're kind of like, this is chaos. How do we cope? So many Christians. And I'm like, I get it. But at the same time, come on, what a moment. Like you were saying, Colossians 3 there. So just getting it. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. And we have a story that guides us in this moment, the God story, the biblical story. And we have a community that we get to meet with in terms of our local church communities. And we have a person, we have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, and I've said it before, but I don't know how people navigate the, this moment without those things. And so instead of being fearful and chaotic and at sea, surely we as Christians would be people who are coming into this moment and offering hope and not a blind hope, not a kind of false hope and not a naive hope, but a deep sense of hope committed to Jesus in this moment. And I think that's the biggest thing we take away as we're navigating some of the most difficult news cycles in this moment. Um, and so that's our encouragement to you. Um, you know, remember that we've been raised with Christ, set our minds on things above. And again, not in a way that takes us out of this world, not a kind of pie in the sky when you die. It has to be, what is it? Cake in the something while you wait. It's here and now is the lived reality of the kingdom now. So that hope, is rooted in reality, in church communities, in our everyday lives, uh, and in being um, kingdom carriers and merchants of holy hope here and now. So Amen. thanks for joining us on the journey uh, this week. We will have more, uh, maybe next week, maybe it's half term, we'll have to think about that. Who knows? We'll see you again soon, guys. Be blessed. Hi, it's Peter here. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.